Welcome to the audio podcast of the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. As we begin to repopulate our historical and recently renovated sanctuary for worship, online worship will continue Sunday morning at 11 a.m. We are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org, as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message. So just a reminder that I'm doing a sermon series this month on the book of Jeremiah. And all the sermons for the month are titled, How to Become a Good Ancestor. And this Sunday is the Juneteenth edition. Let us pray. Your word, O God, is rest and refreshment for our minds, bodies, and spirits. We are weeks away from the murders of black people in Buffalo, hours away from the anniversary of the murders of black folk in a church in Charleston. On this Juneteenth Sunday, when we celebrate the freedom of enslaved Africans that came two and a half years later than declared, we feel joy and sorrow in our bodies. We long to feel rested and refreshed in a country that seeks to annihilate us. Give us some peace in your holy word and some insight into how to be good ancestors. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin this morning with the powerful prose of journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones. If you guys don't have this book, I recommend it. These are the opening pages from the 1619 Project. Listen for a word from God. I was maybe 15 or 16 when I first came across the date 1619. Whenever I think about that moment, my mind conjures an image of glowing three-dimensional numbers rising from the page. Of course, in reality, they were printed in plain black text on the cheap page of a paperback. Still, while the numbers did not literally glow, I remember sitting back in my chair and staring at the date a bit confused, thrown off kilter by an exhilarating revelation starting to sink in. For as long as I can remember, I have been fascinated with the past. Even as a young girl, I loved watching documentaries and feature films about events that took place in a bygone era. As a middle school student, I read all of my dad's Louis L'Amour westerns and the entire Little House series because they transported me to the mythic American frontier. I loved sitting in my grandparents' basement, leafing through aged photo albums filled with square black and white images and asking questions about the long-dead relatives frozen in the frame. My favorite subjects in school were English and social studies, and I peppered my teachers with questions. History revealed the building blocks of the world I now inhabited, explaining how communities, institutions, relationships came to be. Learning history made the world make sense. It provided the key to decode all that I saw around me. 
Black people, however, were largely absent from the histories I read. The vision of the past I absorbed from school textbooks, television, and the local history museum depicted a world, perhaps a wishful one, where black people did not really exist. This history rendered black Americans, black people on all the earth, inconsequential at best, invisible at worst. We appeared only where unavoidable. Slavery was mentioned briefly in the chapter on this nation's most deadly war, and then black people disappeared again for a full century until magically reappearing as Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech about a dream. This quantum leap served to wrap the black experience up in a few paragraphs and a tidy bow, never really explaining why. 100 years after the abolition of slavery, King had to lead the march on Washington in the first place. We were not actors, but acted upon. We were not contributors, just recipients. White people enslaved us, and white people freed us. Black people could choose either to take advantage of that freedom or to squander it, as our depictions in the media seem to suggest so many of us were doing. The world revealed to me through my education was a white one, and yet my intimate world, my neighborhood, the friends I rode the bus with for two hours each day to and from the schools on the white side of town, the boisterous bevy of aunts, uncles, and cousins who crowded our home for barbecues and card games was largely black. At school, I searched desperately to find myself in the American story we were taught to see my humanity our humanity reflected back to me. I snatched Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry from our elementary school library shelf because it was the one book with a black girl on the cover. In high school, when my advanced placement English teacher assigned us a final project on a famous American literary figure, I wrote about the only black poet I had been exposed to, Langston Hughes. My public high school in Waterloo, Iowa, offered a one-semester elective called the African-American Experience, which I took my sophomore year. Only other black kids filled the seats each day, and the only black male teacher I'd ever have taught the course. Rail-thin and mahogany-skinned, with a booming laugh that revealed the wide gap between his front teeth, Mr. Ray Dial deftly navigated our class through the ancient Mali, Songhai, Nubian, and Ghana empires. It was he who taught me that from here to Timbuktu referred to an African center of learning. Surveying the cultures and the knowledge and civilizations that existed among African peoples long before Europeans decided that millions of human beings could be forced across the ocean in the hulls of ships and then redefined as property. He taught us about Richard Allen founding the first independent black denomination on this soil and how hard enslaved people fought for the legal right to do things every other race took for granted, such as reading or marrying. Or keeping your own children he taught us about black resistance and black writers. 
He taught us about Martin, but also Marcus and Malcolm and Mamie and Fanny. Sitting in that class each day, I felt as if I had spent my entire life struggling to breathe and someone had finally provided me with oxygen. I feel a pang of embarrassment now when I recall my surprise that so many books existed about black people and by black people, that black people had so much history that could be learned. I felt at once angry and empowered, and these dueling emotions drove an appetite for learning black American history that has never left me. I began asking Mr. Dial for books to read beyond the assigned text, devouring them, then asking for others. Dr. Hannah, he exclaimed one day, flashing his trademark toothy grin as he put a book in my hands before the Mayflower by the historian and journalist Lerone Bennett, Jr. As soon as I got home that afternoon, I sat down at our dining room table and pulled it from my book bag. A few dozen pages in, I read these words. She came out of a violent storm with a story no one believed. A year before the arrival of the celebrated Mayflower, 113 years before the birth of George Washington, 244 years before the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, this ship sailed into the harbor at Jamestown, Virginia, and dropped anchor into the muddy waters of history. It was clear to the men who received this Dutch man of war that she was no ordinary vessel. What seems unusual today is that no one sensed how extraordinary she really was. For few ships before or since have unloaded a more momentous cargo. Wait. I had assumed that before the Mayflower referred to black people's history in Africa, before they were enslaved on this land. Tracing my fingers across the words, I realized that the title evoked not a remote African history, but an American one. African people had lived here on the land that in 1776 would form the United States since the white lion dropped anchor in the year 1619. They'd arrived one year before the iconic ship carrying the English people who got the credit for building it all. Why hadn't any teacher or textbook in telling the story of Jamestown taught us the story of 1619? No history can ever be complete, of course, Millions of moments, thousands of dates weave the tapestry of a country's past. But I knew immediately, viscerally, that this was not an innocuous omission. The year white Virginians first purchased enslaved Africans, the start of American slavery, an institution so influential and corrosive that it both helped create the nation and nearly led to its demise, is indisputably a foundational historical date, and yet I'd never heard of it before. This morning's sermon is about erasure. It's about a king named Jehoiakim who thought he could disappear the impact and power of events and stories if he burned the written word. 
The book of Jeremiah records these words. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a penknife and throw them into the fire in the brazier. This is a sermon about people who burn books and ban books. People who think if we don't talk about racism and white supremacy and critical race theory, then all that stuff never happened. And if it isn't written down, it's like it never happened. This is a sermon about silence, about good people who see bad things happening and say nothing. It's a sermon about a king named Jehoiakim who had a title and a role and power, but felt threatened and uncomfortable in the presence of a young man a prophet named Jeremiah. This is about a person in power who attempted to silence a prophetic youth named Jeremiah. But the Lord said this, Concerning King Jehoiakim of Judah, he shall have no one to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night, and I, the Lord, will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. This is a sermon about people who are afraid, afraid of prophets, afraid of truth, afraid of healing, afraid of hard work, afraid of doing something different, afraid of being uncomfortable. Good ancestors were and are uncomfortable. The sermon is about those in power who write laws and make policies and offer recommendations laws and policies and recommendations that destroy prophetic truths because those truths do not line up with the story they believe about themselves or the story they want to tell the world. This is a sermon about folks who will rewrite the story if they don't like the story, casting themselves as the good guys and everybody else as crazy, overly sensitive, ambitious. Journalist Roger Kimball wrote, we find ourselves more and more subject to the extraordinary whims of those, and they are legion, who would be our masters for our own good, we are told. But we can't help noticing it is also very much for their good, or at least their profit. This country is mine, not yours, people say. This neighborhood is mine. What are you doing in it? This church is mine. Who do you think you are? Jeremiah told the truth, and people disliked him, imprisoned him, failed to invite him to the cookout. Nicole Hannah-Jones tells the truth, and people dislike her, threaten her and her family, try to get her fired from her various posts and positions, try to ban her written words. Far too many people believe the solution to a problem is to simply ignore it. Our church was doing fine before you started talking about your problems. Or, the way to get rid of racism is to simply stop talking about it. Or, if I could just find some matches, I could handle this problem right quick. King Jehoiakim thought he could erase the impact and the power of events and stories if he burned the written word. And Jeremiah lets us know that did not go well for him. We cannot burn the scroll on the stories of 1619 that give context to today's Juneteenth celebration. Otherwise, how do we know what we're celebrating? The history of this country is uncomfortable. It's ugly. 
It's devastating, it's feral, and it's murderous. And it's not over. This is not ancient history. It's right now history. It's Asian bodies getting shot up in Dallas and black bodies in Charleston in a church and a Buffalo grocery store. And we thank God that we have each other, that we get to sit together in community, in the messy mud of ugly truths, giving thanks that freedom of a sort can be celebrated for black folk, while simultaneously weeping over scrolls that continue to detail our ongoing enslavement and the harm that continues to visit black, brown, indigenous, and people of color. From enslavement to sharecropping, to land theft, to lynching, to redlining, to myths of model minorities and the separation of Latinx families, the incarceration and surveillance of black and brown bodies, the destruction of the planet, and the criminalization of poverty. It's deep, church. And it is our life's work, our call from God, I believe, to clean up the hot mess we have made of God's good creation and to help one another become good ancestors. I want to thank God this morning for Reverend Dr. William Barber and Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, herself a Presbyterian Church USA minister, a member of our presbytery, who led the Poor People's Campaign Moral March on Washington yesterday. These are modern-day Jeremiah's keepers of the scroll. They help keep the stories before the king and the rest of us, and they prophesy to those who will listen and to those who have not ever listened. Let's continue to ask God to strengthen the church and the people to be a place that can bear to read the scroll, that can bear one another's stories. Because as the prophet Jeremiah said, it may be that when the house of Judah hears of all the disasters that the Lord intends to do to them, it may be that all of them will turn from their evil ways so that God may forgive their iniquity and their sin. I'm going to invite Johnny Cruz Mercer to share his response to the sermon in movement this Juneteenth Sunday. It was important to Johnny to be here today, even though he and his students performed yesterday in the garden. I'm really grateful for a dancer in the sacred space this morning because of what a body in motion says about freedom, and on this Juneteenth Sunday, because of what a black male body moving freely in sacred space says to us about a God who has kept black folk in this country that has sought to destroy us from the time our feet first touched the land. So thank you, Johnny, for your gift. And may all that we share together be to the glory of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you are fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide hybrid worship options with both in-person and online worship Sunday morning at 11 a.m. We are live in the sanctuary, as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org 
and the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on safety protocols and pre-registration options. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.